All right, we're going to finish up Philadelphia today. Next week, we will try and do Laodicea in one week um, because it is, nah, we won't, but um, it is a unique church. Laodicea is, it's different than all the rest. <laughs> uh, actually, I can find the American church in every one of these. Um, so, uh, okay, as a recap, last week, how many, um, uh, let's see, what did we talk about last week? Let's just buzz through this real fast. Philadelphia Church is the, the stronger of the seven, or the strongest, or the, uh, let's, let's use this word, uh, it is the brightest lampstand of the seven. I think that's the best way to put it, because it's not really a competition, but it is, um, it is important to understand that this church is uh, doing exactly and functioning exactly in a capacity that Jesus is looking for, for the churches to uh, function in, in that it is bearing witness of his name rightly. And again, one of the things that I want to keep before us is, is that it's easy to get caught up in the granularity of what we're talking about. And the reason that we're doing it is because this book, above all else, has been so misconstrued because of the way that people interpret the, the imagery in it. And, and they do. They take one little piece of the imagery and they, they inflate it into huge theological deals that are often outside of the context of Scripture, and they're all, and a lot of times they're put in a future, uh, a future context wherein the Old Testament and previous scriptural references that could have import to the illusion or to the imagery are often neg uh, neglected, and so we come up with really odd concepts. Like how many of you've heard that the mark of the beast will be a chip that's in your credit card? Where does that come from? I mean, it, it, there's no scriptural precedent for anything like that. John certainly didn't understand what a credit card was. And so the idea of projecting some image way into the future really uh, undermines the, un the, the, the pervasive theme um, that we have going on in the book of Revelation. The other part is, is that when we look at the churches, the reason that we're spending the amount of time on the churches is because this is, this is who the book is addressed to. Yes? Yeah. Oh, Mike. No, I was going to say his name's not Mike. Oh. Uh, just one thought. When you talk about projecting the fact that the mark of the beast could be a chip in the credit yeah. card, blah, 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 blah. I think, doesn't that really uh, is centered around how one interprets revelations for those, for revelation, for those who look at it as a book that projects into the future and most everything in it is going to happen in the future? Yep. It would make sense that the mark of the beast is a symbolic of something that will happen in the future which could manifest itself in this technology called a chip, blah, 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 you know, so forth and so on. Uh, agreed. Absolutely agreed. And, and uh, that's one of the reasons that we spent several weeks on understanding 
are uh, the hermeneutic, uh, the hermeneutic of allowing the Bible to interpret itself. Because the best hermeneutic is, and to be honest with you, there are a great many apocalyptic books in the scriptures. There's all the old, uh, the Daniel, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, um, Jeremiah has some in it, um, uh, Revelation. And so you see uh, Thessalonians, all of these have future imagery. We only do this projection with Revelation. And John was using imagery, and what he was pulling from was imagery from his understanding of the Old Testament scriptures in order to describe what he was seeing. So a lot of times what you'll see is it's better to always think going backward than to go forward. Now, this is a challenge that I've had because I have been a futurist when interpreting Revelation. I've always been a futurist a dispensationalist that has looked at the entire book of Revelation as being something that's, that's going to take place without the church around or without the church on the earth. It's the way I've always understood it, right? Um, and I'm finding it difficult for me to read Revelation without continuing, uh, continuing that theme in my mind. And I'll read something and I go, oh, that's still coming. And then I'll have to go, wait a minute. John's writing to a first century audience. I have to find a context for that now. And there are por portions of Revelation that are definitely future in their context. For example, Revelation 20, Revelation 21, the end of the beast and 19 and things like that. Those are all things that will happen. And those are all things that John is being shown so that we know that this is going to come to a culminating victory in Christ, uh, in God's agenda, that God, God is going to exercise judgment on the enemy, cast it out, it's going to be done with, and a new heaven and a new earth is coming down. That's the hope that we're looking toward. So there are aspects of Revelation that are future in context. However, the bulk of the visions, and I would say from 4 to chapter 9, from chapter 4 to chapter 19, are predominantly what's going on now. The mark of the beast is happening now. Mark of the Beast was going on when John was writing the letters to the churches. Um, and I think it's exemplified when Jesus says those are of the synagogue of Satan. Because it's those that are marked for a camp. Right? Is, does Jesus mark only those that are his during the tribulation period? Or has he marked his own throughout history? Right? He's marked his own throughout history. Then why would we relegate the mark of the beast to a seven-year period after the church has been removed from the earth? If, in fact, the mark of God is, or the, 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 the name of God is placed on his own throughout history, in, through the entirety of the church age, might we not also equate Lucifer as marking his own throughout the church age? And the answer to that, I feel like, is yes. Um, is it a physical mark? Is it going to be a chip in the back of your hand? Is it going to be something that you get on a credit card? The answer to that is no, because then it no longer has application to the first century church. Because they didn't have credit cards. They didn't have technology to put a chip in your forehead. But there were those in the first century that were marked under the beast. 
by the systems of Antichrist. And Jesus alludes to those, especially in Philadelphia, where he says those who are claimed to be Jews but are not and are really of the synagogue of Satan. He aligns those people with the Antichrist camp. Does that make sense? Now, that's the amillennial perspective that I'm functioning from. And it's, it's, a, it's a paradigm shift for those of you, especially in America, that have been inundated with dispensational thought with regards to the apocalyptic literature. It is very hard to tear yourself away from that, take a step back and look and say, yeah, this has application for here and now. And I'm saying this because I find myself having to do that. I'm finding myself in many instances having to take a step back and go, wait a minute, I'm, I'm subconsciously projecting all of this into a future where it no longer has application for me. I have to take a step back and realign myself and see how that has import to me here and now. So uh, that's an encouragement for you guys as you're studying Revelation, as you're studying what's going on in the world right now. Be mindful that it's easy to take a step into the futurist camp totally and go, oh, well, that's for later on. Instead of taking a look around and saying, no, 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 that's happening now. Case in point, you will not be able to buy and sell unless you take the mark of the beast, right? Do we see that going on right now? How about the baker in, California, uh, in Colorado? How about the Christian baker in Oregon? How about Chick-fil-A? How about, these, how about these actors that are standing up and saying, no, I don't abide by this particular thing that's going on in the world, and they're no longer acting? They're not able to function in the market anymore because of their stand for Christendom. That's what John is speaking of when he says, and they will no longer be able to buy and sell. And what we do is we look to the future saying, oh my gosh, there's going to be these little clusters of people that, are, you know, that have stored up food for themselves for years and years and years, and then they're kicked out of the society, and then they have to go underground and distribute food that they keep in bunkers. It's not what John is talking about. What John is saying is that throughout history, there have been those that have stood up against the move of the enemy and have been removed from the economic system. And we see it throughout history, especially during the Roman Empire. Does that make sense? Okay, so I just wanted to say, hey, let's guard ourselves from projecting too much of this into the future. There are future things that are about, and we know those because Lucifer has not been cast into the cast out. We know that. We know that the new Jerusalem has not come on the earth. We know that, right? So those are very specific things. Um, so also when you start finding yourself trying to line up current events with specific imagery in the, uh, in the Revelation, that's all often kind of uh, like, for example, well, I'll use the mark of the beast again when we try very hard to say, oh, this chip that they're coming out with, that must be the mark of the beast. That's... A, that's not a profitable train of thought when you read Revelation. I'll just tell you that right now. It's not a profitable chain of, train of thought. It begins to bring in and close in the walls of Revelation and what it's trying to say to us as a church right now. Keep in mind that the entire book of Revelation spans this time period. The interadvental 
time period or the church, oops, church age, okay? All right. So Revelation is this. It's what's going on here, okay? With a few allusions to what happens here. Okay, does that make sense? Everybody with me? So, I, you know, I, I, it's okay to have differences. I'll just say that right now because there's not a, a book in the Bible that has more people commenting on, diff, uh, on different things like this. And even in my own library, I've got people saying almost polar opposites about certain passages. So um, that's why I encourage you, bring it into the arena of the here and now. Bring it into the understanding of this so that it has pertinence to you. Otherwise, it's the only book in the entire Bible that has no significance today. And I just don't get that. Okay? Can everybody read that okay? Okay. <laughs> Incarnation. Interadvental. I write like a doctor, right? This is return for Christ's return, and then that's revelation, and that's supposed to say church age. <laughs> all right. So with that all in mind, the book opens with a picture of Jesus, the victor, the, the resurrected victor, and he tells you what the book is about. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and this is what's about to come about. And then he launches immediately into a uh, a. a, a, a what a section wherein he is talking to the churches there are seven churches so that we know uh by symbolic numerology i don't like that term so let's just uh let's don't use that word by um by the the symbolism of the number that seven represents completion and fullness so that we're talking about the fullness of the church therefore because they are identified as the recipients of the book we have to apply the book in its entirety to the church age so we do that. And now we're going through and we're looking at what is the cross section. Are we okay? My wife always says you erase it too fast, so I wanted to ask. Um, so now we look at what is the composition of the church? What is the state of the church during the interadvental period? What are the things that, uh, that happen to the church? What are the things that come about? And so far we've listed what? We've listed zeal without love. Ephesians. Um, we've, the next one is Smyrna, right? Right. So, but, but maintaining, maintaining, but persecuted unto death. And then we have Pergamum, tolerant. Well, that's a big word today. And that has relevance to today. And the dangers are shown by what's going on in the Pergamum church about becoming tolerant. Then we have Thyatira. Thyatira is completely compromised. They're, they're allowing sinful practice. But they are the opposite of Ephesus because what's allowing them to be tolerant and permissive of sin is their love. So whereas Ephesians, the Ephesus church is strong and without love, strong in doctrine and without love. The, the Thyatiran church is weak in doctrine, but strong in love. 
And zeal without knowledge is dangerous. Okay? And then we have the Sardis church, wherein sin has taken it, it has borne fruit, and the church is basically dead, with the exception of a few people that have not soiled their garment. Right? And now we're, so all of these are churches that if we let our mind go, we can say, oh, that sounds like I've seen that before. I know of that. I've experienced that. I've been a part of something like that. So we can, we can actually apply those to, to situations that we've been in. Now we're at the Philadelphia church. And the Philadelphia church, as we will call, was established in an area where they were the gatekeepers between Phrygia and um, Lydia. Thank you. I was thinking Lycus, and I was, no, no, that's the valley that they were in. Um, Lydia and Phrygia, they were the gateway, and they were planted there. Uh, they were the youngest of the churches that were planted, uh, the youngest of the cities raised up, and they were raised up for the specific purpose of Hellenizing the area. And they did such a good job at it that by within, uh, boy, I want to say within 100 years, something like that, they had pretty well eradicated the Lydian tongue from its own area. And everybody spoke Greek. And everybody functioned as with Greek mannerisms. Very, very, very successful at proselytizing for the Hellenistic cause. They were a city founded on a, with a missionary cause. And that's why this is very important. Again, another very important aspect is the city was destroyed by a great earthquake. Devastated. So much so, that it was, and, and there were several other cities that were also, that John speaks of, that were also devastated in the same earthquake. They are Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea was also affected by the earthquake, as we will see. Sardis and Philadelphia were destroyed and rebuilt by the beneficence of the Roman government. However, whereas Sardis experienced the one-time issue, Philadelphia continued to have aftershocks, significant aftershocks, for many years afterwards. I think that the one author, Ramsey, says something into the term uh, to the tune of three years. So it caused a great deal of fear within the community, and people were not living in the city. They had actually moved to huts outside of the city walls And we're becoming very, ag uh, uh, what is that word, agrarian, <laughs> um, away from the city. And people who stayed in the cities were considered foolish. And they had to continually bolster the structures that they lived in, for, in, in preparation for these aftershocks. All right. Um, let's see what else. I guess that's, and then we went into the letter, and then the one, the holy and true. The other aspect of this is very significant. The theme of this letter is very Jewish. The illusions and the symbolism of this letter are extensively Jewish in nature, Hebraic, okay? Um, and so from that and from what is said by Jesus, we understand that the greatest source of opposition that, was, that, was, uh, that had arrayed itself against the church in Philadelphia was Jewish in nature. 
Now, do we remember what the Jews were known for back in the first century when it came to the church? Jews. Yeah, the, the, the Judaism. What was Judaism known for throughout the, uh, during the time of Christ and throughout the, the, the first century? What, what, did, what was their common practice? Yes, that's true. Um, but let's look at it in a cultural context. What was their common practice culturally? Number one, they believed that the kingdom of God was a physical kingdom. Right? They believed that, that Jesus was going to physically ride in, subject all the world to the Jewish people. All right? So they looked forward to a physical kingdom on the earth, right? So what was the Jewish practice? The Jewish practice was to go in and begin to work with the political structure of any given city, become very close in working with them. And one of their main adversaries and one of their main focus, well, not adversaries, but one of the focuses of their, uh, what's the word? Angst, <laughs> I guess, was the church. They were vehemently opposed to the church because they claimed that this Jesus was the Messiah. That was an abominable statement to the, to the Jews of Judaism. So they, in order to maintain good keeping with the local magistrates, especially with Rome, they would set up ways in which they would turn over the Christians to the local government. And they became very, very good at this and one of the things that they would do is when the christians would come in among them they actually structured certain things uh um liturgical statements where the the crowd would respond and part of one of the things that they incorporated was this idea of uh denouncing christ as messiah and then they would watch to see who didn't say that and then they knew who the christians were among them and then they would turn those christians over to the magistrate Okay, so the Christians were always either hit, and that's a really good picture of the false prophet that we see later on, which is the religious structure of the one world government, or the, 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 the beast's uh, antichrist government has a religion that goes with it, that merges with it, that becomes... Um, um, directly associated with it okay so anyway so philadelphia is filled with jewish imagery and we talked about that uh it starts out i am the holy one the true one the one who holds the key of david where no one uh, where he who opens and no one shuts this is again an allusion to isaiah twenty two twenty two. um where and this is this is a direct statement against the Jewish people uh, or the the Judaizers who were there in Philadelphia, who I'm sure were saying, "We hold the key. We're not letting the church, uh, those who hold to the Messiah, into the kingdom of God." And Jesus is saying, "No, no, they don't hold the key to David. I do." And so that was a that was a big affront to the Jewish people. I am the one who holds the key of David. And it goes back to what happened in Isaiah 22, 22, where um, Eliakim was given the key to the house of David in place of Shedna, who was not, 
was no longer in favor because he was abusing his authority with the key. So God made the, cha- the choice. He put another one in their place. Now that's interesting imagery. Took the key away from Shebna and gave it to Eliakim. A, that's all a picture because the key was taken away from Israel and given to Jesus Christ, who then in turn did what with it? Shares it with the church, which is another affront to the, Judy, uh, to the Jewish community in Philadelphia. Okay? So we talked about all of this. Um, so now we're at point C, and it, uh, we're at the phrase where it says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So, as we're going through this, I think it's very important that we keep in the context, and this is, this is something that I find that a lot of commentators do not do. So when you read com- commentaries, especially on the book of Revelation, you'll find that what they do is they take a verse, and then they interpret the verse almost in isolation, But we have to look at what's being said here in context of what Jesus said in chapter 1. I am the Lord of the lampstands. I'm walking among the lampstands. What are the purpose of the lampstands? To illuminate and bear witness to to the one who's walking among them. Right? What is our job as a church? To bear witness. To what? To the one who walks among us. To the Lord of the lampstand. We're to reflect Christ rightly. We're to shine light on who he is. We're to, we're to bring light to darkness. Right? All of these things are the context by which all of this is said to the Philadelphian church. And so what you'll see is a lot of commentators will, will try and make this a very, very strong Jewish imagery with you get to come into the kingdom of God. But it takes away from the context wherein the idea was here to shine the light on who Jesus was and to bear witness to, uh, uh, of who he is in their church context. So when Jesus says, I have set before you an open door that no man can shut, and we put that into the context of the, the initial vision, what do, we see, what do we see? That now the church in Philadelphia has been given by Christ who holds the key of David an open door to speak the gospel to all those around them, to shine the light that no one can snuff out, to demonstrate who Jesus is, to reflect rightly on who he is, and not only that, but to bear fruit in so doing. Okay? So it's a church that walks in accordance to the righteousness of who God is without that has zeal with love, that may be under persecution, but doesn't expend all of their effort on just maintaining against the persecution. Because here's the interesting thing. Philadelphia, like Smyrna, like Smyrna was also under persecution because the, the synagogue of the Jews is said in, uh, or the synagogue of Satan is said both in Smyrna and Philadelphia, right? No, it's not right. I have to go back and see who that who it was said. Nevertheless, both churches were under persecution, and yet Sardis, uh, uh, Smyrna was doing all of it can, and nothing is really s- said about their witness going forward. It just basically says you've maintained, you've borne up under this. Philadelphia, on the other hand, was also under persecution, and yet they flourished. 
That's the difference. Philadelphia is commended for their flourishing. Sardis was commended because it was maintaining. So in this particular context, because this was a missionary church, because this was somebody who was very successful, as we'll see, Laodicea was also set up as a missionary city to also bring Hellenization to its area and failed miserably. And yet Philadelphia has done very good at, what they're, at, at, at Hellenizing this area. So for Jesus to come and say, I have set before you an open door. I have the key of David. You guys have done your do- job. You've borne up. You've flourished. This would be understood by the Philadelphian churches saying, oh man, in context of who we are and in context of what we've been doing as, as spreading the Hellenis, uh, as Hellenizing the entire area, we can now do the same thing with the gospel because the Lord, the key holder of the house of David, has set before us an open door that no one can shut and we can speak the gospel. So this is, God sets before the church, which is the Great Commission, right? Let's go back to the Great Commission. What does Jesus say? There you go. And do what? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. That is the commission to the church, right? And so we find that there's one church in all seven that's doing this rightly, and it is the church that is most commended for its works. It has zeal with love. It has borne up under persecution. It has not been tolerant. It has not allowed sin to permeate its ranks. It is alive and vibrant. And because it is all of these things, and as we'll see, it is not complacent. Therefore, because it is all of these things, the Lord has set before it an open door. Why? Because the witness must be right. We must bear witness to who God is rightly. And only when we bear witness to who Jesus is rightly does the fruit of that witness come to pass. If we speak of Jesus Christ when we're in compromised sin and dead, what does that say of our witness? What kind of light are we shining? And upon whom do we shine it upon? So the Philadelphia church was rightly in a place where God could, Jesus Christ, could set before them an open door because of their persistence and overcoming and all the things that they did rightly. Okay? So it, does it make sense? Questions? Okay. I know your works, behold, I've set before you. Uh, I know your works. George Eldon Ladd says of this, these good works were not further described. The church in Philadelphia was one so abounding at good works that she was pleasing to the Lord. That's an important statement. Pleasing in all ways to the Lord. This is the only church that there is nothing said. In a negative capacity. Nothing. There's no encouragement for them to keep going. That's what was going on with Sardis. I know you're bearing up. Keep going. Philadelphia was, you're not only bearing up, you're flourishing. Okay? 
Although the church had but little, listen to this, although the church had but little power and was very small with limited influence and resource, its character was such that the letter has only commendation from the Lord. Wow. I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. This statement usually has one of two interpretations applied to it, both of which pertain to the key of David. The first has to do with the church's obvious conflict with the local Jews. That since Christ now has the absolute authority to give admission into the kingdom, this is a promise to the Philadelphian church of sure entrance, which I'm sure is contradictory to what the Jews were telling them. All right? So it's a, it's a word of encouragement to the church. The Jews were certainly claiming that only they, ethnic Israel, had access to the door of king, God's kingdom and that they had the, uh, barred the little, and, and I'm sure that they had barred the little church's entrance. Uh, so Christ is giving them a word of encouragement. The second has to do with the missionary efforts, and we've said that in several places, but I'll, I'll flesh it out a little bit here. In several places in this letter, Paul, uh, in his letters, Paul spoke of a new missionary opportunity as an open door. Scriptural references, Acts 14, 27, 1 Corinthians 16, 9. Am I going too fast? 2 Corinthians 2, 2 and Colossians 4, 3. All of these have to do with being able to propagate the gospel and the illusion that he uses is I have been, there has been set before me an open door to preach the gospel. This is the same imagery that's being used here. Accordingly, Christ sets before the Philadelphian church an open door before the Philadelphian believers by which he is giving them the opportunity to proclaim or bear witness to the gospel without hindrance since what he opens, no one can shut. Some commentators hold that this also implies a promise of success. Okay. Uh, I prefer, personally, the second interpretation because of the overarching theme inherent in the lampstand image. But I understand both of them. Um, Smyrna was also a church with our... Okay, so I already said that. Um, I know you have little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Uh, the Greek aorist tense here refers to some, dis, dis, some distinct occasion in the past when they have proved themselves faithful uh, when tested. Okay? But you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The tense of that Greek in that means that there was a time when they were severely tested and they walked through it. Okay? Uh, however... This is not to remove the contemporary application of what is being said here. To that end, Douglas Kelly writes uh, that contemporary Christians contemplate the aggressive secularism of modern American and Western Europe with systematic unbeliefs in high places such as the universities and the media. Add to that the entrenched modernism of the educational system and the uh, precipitous moral decline of a once Christian population. It's true that over against them our strength is small, but Jesus says that we are not anxiously to worry about it. You have little strength. 
Use what little you have, and I am going to supernaturally multiply it by opening the right doors. So again, in this, we have the imagery of David and Goliath. A very large adversary who's coming against us and blustering and shouting us down. And, and here you have David who doesn't even have armor on. But in his zeal, knew that God had set before him an open door. And ran and took what little resource he had, which is what? A rock. And engaged the battle, and with one sure shot, bam. So this is, this is the imagery that we see in the Philadelphian church. A small, seemingly weak, seemingly without resource, persecuted church that God has set before an open door that no one, not the screaming giant, not society, not modernity, not secularism, not the school systems, not the political climate, that no one can shut down. This is very important for us right now. Will you have to endure? Yes. Will it be uncomfortable? Yes. Might you have to make sacrifices? Yes. Will God, will anything, will the shouting giant, will all of the things that I just mentioned be able to shut the door before you? No. What was the big mistake of the ten spies when they came back? What was the big mistake that they made? Fear. Of what? Well, how, what? What caused the fear? No. And we are like grasshoppers in their sight. Because Joshua saw the same giants. And what did he say? Come on, guys, we can do this. Why? Because Joshua looked outside of himself. The ten were looking at themselves. We are small. We are puny. We are ugh. And how many times do we say that when we read the news and go, what can we do? Oh, my gosh. Better barricade the door and go buy canned goods. Huh? And guns. <laughs> and we, we don't see that with the two spies. They came back and said, no, no, no. We're barricading ourselves in. We can do this. Do we say that now? Do, let me ask you this personally. Do you say this now? Or is it, oh my gosh, look at how dark it is out there. I think a lot of times we do the latter. It's not a rebuke. It's an encouragement. Look at Philadelphia. Look at David. Look at the two spies that came back. Look at throughout Scripture. Look at David's mighty men. Oh my gosh. The guy set up, a, set up one guy in a lentil field. How many did he sl slay? 300 by himself. Wow. We, could, we can do this. Philadelphia shows us that we can. All right?
Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and, and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. All right, what do you, what do you read? What are you thinking of when I read that to you? What's the first thing you think of? Or do you think of anything? <laughs> this is one of those very, very interesting uh, phrases. And this is one that I told you that when you read commentaries, especially on this book, you're going to find a plethora, a wide swath of different interpretations. This one is one of those passages where you're going to find that. Uh, the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not. This is the second time in the letters uh, of the churches that the local Jewish synagogue is described as the synagogue of Satan. All right. Again, the, de this, uh, the declaration is made that the true Jew is not who is one outwardly by ethnic heritage, but he who is one inwardly. And by rejecting Jesus as the Messiah or Christ of God, they had become anti-Christ. Listen to this. They had become anti-Christ and joined the systems of the beast by persecuting Christ. In other words, Jesus does not deny their ethnicity, but rather denies their covenant status because they had rejected him upon whom the covenant depended. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. This particular phrase would be one of the most offensive and shocking to the Jews because it is a flip-flop of Old Testament references such as Isaiah 60, Isaiah 45, Isaiah 49, and Ezekiel 37, not to mention others, where it says, The sons of those who have afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you uh, shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion, the Holy One of Israel. So all of those passages have that kind of tone to them. And the idea was that the promise to the Jewish people that the Gentiles will eventually come and bow down at your feet. So the, the Jews were waiting for this day. Well, what does Jesus say to the Philadelphian Gentile church? He flips the whole scripture on its head and said, no, 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 the Jews now will come to you and bow at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Oh! Blasphemy! This letter has actually flipped the hope of ethnic Israel and applied it to its true intendants, the true Israel of God, who is the church. That, let me say this, one of the rubs against Reformed theology is that we're a replacement that we, we hold to a replacement theology that the church has replaced Israel. No, no, the church includes Israel. That needs to be understood. Okay? Church doesn't replace Israel. It's not like, okay, you guys failed, you're out, now we're going to do this. No, that Israel, those who, have hold, those who hold that Jesus is the Messiah of the Jewish ethnicity are now incorporated into, it was Israel... Among the world. They were the only godly nation in the world. Now that has been broadened to the church 
which includes Israel. But only, not ethnic Israel, but those who come to faith in the Messiah of Israel, who is Jesus Christ. Okay? So I don't want that to be an accusation that you might think or, 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 or thought that you might have concerning what we hold here in this church. We're not replacement theologians, or I'm not. And I say that confidently that the other guys aren't either. I believe that the church incorporates Israel, that Israel is a type. It is, a, it is an image or a picture of what is going to be the fullness of under the new covenant, which is to bring in the Gentiles. Okay? Well, Yeah, yeah, and that's Galatians, a lot of Galatians as well, Paul talks about, okay? So, uh, and Jesus clearly said it, he said the sons of the kingdom, he said those, the, 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 those that are not of the kingdom will come and take the seat of those that are, does he not say that? They'll come and sit in the place of the kingdom. Instead of the sons of the kingdom. He's referring to Israel. Okay. So. Um, now. This is where the rub gets. Those that hold to this idea that. Israel as a nation will be saved. In the eschaton. As a whole. Look at this passage and say. This is tr proof text. That Israel will come back. In mass. And one commentator says, and all of Israel will be saved, according to this text. Okay? Yeah. And they use the imagery of bowing down as being before Jesus instead, but that's not what the text says. And I, I want to make something very clear. Uh, this, this passage here is, is, is one of vindication. This is a statement of vindication. It's a pledge to those who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake that their persecutors will finally realize and acknowledge the truth. But understand that this acknowledgement is not of their own volition. What does the passage actually say? Read the first phrase, or the first clause. I will make those who are of the household of, uh, of the synagogue come and bow down. I will make them come and bow down. This is vindication. This isn't a promise that the entire Jewish nation will be saved. This is a statement that those who have opposed the true Israel of God will come and bow down and acknowledge that you are indeed true Israel and God has indeed loved you. It goes along with the same passage of Scripture that every knee will bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you think the heathen, those that are uh, destined, that, that includes those that are destined to eternal, eternal punishment. 
by making that con- confession at the great eschaton or the great judgment seat of God. Excuse me. <coughs> Does that mean that they're going to be saved at the last minute? <coughs> Do those that have died and stand before the Lord and are judged and they fall to their feet and go, you indeed are the Son of God? Are they saved? No. Are these Jews that come and finally acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus has loved the church of Jesus Christ, that they have persecuted, are they saved in this passage? There's no indication that they are. This is a vindication. This is, this is finally being set aright. This is God saying they will acknowledge what is true, just like those that are brought before the Lord on Judgment Day, and they will acknowledge before all of their resistance, this is indeed God. Okay, any, any questions? I got angry looks. There's one. So, Dean, let me see if I understand this. Are you saying that uh, at the judgment seat that everything... The die has been cast. The judgment has already been made before they come up before the seat. Yep. So there's no chance of them coming to a realization of the truth. Not after, not at that point. It is appointed unto man one time to die, and after that the judgment. But wasn't but that thing about one point to die, couldn't that be physical death? It is physical death, but it's also spiritual death. There, once this life is over, there's no second chance. You don't get to, now I've lived absolutely, this, this is the probationary period on this earth for all mankind. You either make the choice here and now of who Jesus is, or you do not. And once you die, you slip into eternity in that space. And there are scriptures that continue to say in, in the Revelation that let those who continue to reject God continue to do so, and let those who... Uh, that, that have proclaimed him and, 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 and declare him continue to do so. Okay, I could see that argument. Yeah. But what about throughout history, all the millions and millions of people had no exposure whatsoever to the gospel, to the truth, to Jesus Christ. Yeah. In p- complete ignorance. Right. So they die. Yep. Comes to the judgment. Yep. Then what would you say? Well, you've now stepped outside of the purview, purview of my understanding. Now you're asking me to pass a judgment that only God can pass. But Scripture is clear that you have but one opportunity in this life. And after that, there is not another given. You don't get a second opportunity once that opportunity has passed. And that is in this life. It seems like the key word is opportunity. Right. But we don't know. You can't, you cannot sit in, a, in Sacramento, California and say that there's a guy over here in Ethiopia that has never had an opportunity that, that just does not know. Because you don't know. You don't know that God has not left himself without witness. As a matter of fact, Scripture says that he has. So there's a general revelation that all people are exposed to throughout, throughout, throughout their life. God has not left himself without witness. Yeah. 
there's a conscience. There's all of these different things that we, that we, uh, that throughout Scripture that God has not allowed Himself, uh, that, that He does not uh, leave Himself without witness. So there is, and, and Paul is very clear, so you are without excuse, oh man. That's general statement. That's not you are without excuse, Jew, or you are without excuse, those of you that have heard and had the gospel preached. It is you are without excuse, oh man. And yeah, so uh, there's this idea that I'll try to say this without any kind of abruptness. I find that Christians often put themselves in a position of trying to make judgment calls that are reserved for God. And and we allow questions to come into our mind that only God answers. And we begin to allow them to make hazy spaces in our theology. We have to be very careful. The very first thing that I would always tell you is you have to hold on to what is truly stated in Scripture and then go from there. What is truly stated in Scripture, in the whole of Scripture? It is appointed unto man wants to die. That you are without excuse, O man. That there are going to be those that are judged. Those who, those who know are going to be judged more harshly than those who do not. That's Scripture. We know all of this by what Scripture is saying. We don't know. We have no idea what an individual has understood by his life about who God is. We don't know. So I cannot say that there are people in this world that have never had opportunity because I don't know that that's true. Scripture says that he has not left himself without witness, so I have to hold to that. Yes, I think we've all grappled with that question and what I always come back to is that we look at what we know of God and his nature and what he says in his word and then you just have to trust that he is he says he doesn't want any to perish he's not willing that any should perish and also um, he's just and he's merciful and so I've always just thought if there's someone out there who's going to know him then He's going to make sure they know what they need to know yeah. in order to come to him. And if somebody never heard, but, you know, God knows if that person would have rejected him anyway. You know, so I just think without trying to figure all that out, yeah. just it's that hu- same humility we have to have in everything mm-hmm. that's hard for mm-hmm. us about God, knowing that he's so beyond our comprehension. Yeah. And trusting in what we know of his goodness, so in his, his nature. Yeah, and and we use those kinds of ideas as compel as uh, a compellent or a compelling statement for us to go out and pro- proclaim the gospel, right? So that every man does hear the good news of the gospel. But involved in this conversation is election, is uh, the sovereignty of God, permissive and definitive will. I mean, there's God's judgment, who judges all things rightly, who sees the heart of a man that we can't see. Um, 
There's also what David says that before any of my days were, they were all written in your book. So we don't know what God's plan was for an Ethiopian boy who may not have had somebody actually preach the gospel to him, but God does. So there's a whole lot of factors involved here. The other thing that we have to be careful of is not gravitating to one or the other of God's attributes. God is love, and He is not willing that any should perish. He is also justice. And you cannot have love without justice, and this is where the world errs. They want to come to us and say, well, your God is love. Oh, yes, but he's also justice, and he will set aright everything that is contrary to who he is. And you better be really clear about that. So when you have these people that say, oh, there's not going to be any hell because God is love, that's an abomination and abuse of Scripture. Because at the same time that God is love, his love incorporates justice and you cannot have God's love without his justice you cannot have it and so we have to incorporate the fullness of the scripture we have to incorporate the fullness of who God is we have to incorporate faith that God is bigger and more knowledgeable than us we we have to we, we cannot make the classic mistake that everything about God is subject to to Western mentality. Because it's not. There are things about God that we cannot mentally reconcile. So, I would just say that, uh, I don't want to beat that horse to death, but there's a lot of factors in that. And so, back to the text, the idea here is, is that, the, that many commentators, especially of the pre-tribulation or pre-millennialist concept, believe, use this scripture as, proof text that Israel will once again be saved. This scripture does not have anything to do with that. What it is saying is that these people will be vindicated because those who have persecuted them will finally come to them and say, no, 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 you are the ones that God has loved. So it is a word of encouragement. i got to stop. Um, any last questions? Anybody offended? I hope not. I didn't, didn't mean to. All right. Father, we're grateful. We rejoice in who you are as Messiah, as King, as Sovereign, as Lord of creation. We ask that you would be present in a real tangible way here this morning and that you would relish and joy in your church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.